All right, I want to welcome everyone. I want to welcome everyone this morning to Grace Community Church. We're going to continue in our study of the book of Acts today. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Acts 19. Acts 19. If I could, could I get somebody in the back to give me a thumbs up if you can hear me this morning? If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Acts 19. We're going to spend some time praying together before we dive into this text. And we're going to ask God to meet us this morning. And I can look all across this room and I can know that my brothers and sisters, more than anything else, you need to meet with Jesus Christ. You need to be addressed by Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray for us and all across this room. We're going to pray in agreement and we're going to ask our God and our Father in heaven to draw near this morning and to speak to us through his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we just sung. And we're reminded, Lord, as a church of this glorious day. Of the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And this day when the trump shall resound and you say that the Lord will descend. And all of heaven and all of earth, Lord. It will be made known that Christ is Lord of all. Lord of every created thing. High and exalted in every way. Lord, and we long for that day where Jesus is King. King over all. Where we behold our Lord Jesus in righteousness face to face, Lord. The day where you replace the sun with your radiant brightness. And we long for that day and we praise your holy name that that day is a certainty, Lord. It's only a matter of time before you make all things new and place all things under the feet of Jesus. And Lord, until that day, God, that appointed glorious day, Lord, we ask you to sustain us, God. We ask you to meet with us, Lord. We ask you... To create within us, God, holiness, Lord, more and more, day by day. And so, Lord, I ask you to draw near today. We as a family, Lord, as a local church, draw near today and speak to us, Lord, through your word. Father, we pray that you would give us an additional reminder today, more than you already have, God, of our sinful state apart from Christ. And we ask for the conviction of the Spirit of God to fall upon us, Lord. That our minds wouldn't just know the truth, God, but we would feel our uncleanness apart from Jesus Christ. Do it today, Lord. Do it in a greater measure, more and more. God, we ask you to bear witness to the gospel today through the preaching of your word. And that you would remind us of who you've called us to be in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we ask you to teach us. We are your disciples. Teach us how to think about this world that we live in. Instruct us and equip us, Lord, to live the life that you would have us to live in the midst of this ungodly world. Lord, this is our prayer today. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'll ask you to turn to Acts 19. We're going to read our text together, and because this is another long passage, I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. 
for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin reading in verse 21. This is the Word of God to Grace Community Church. Verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we receive our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even disposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Verse 28. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the, the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were traveling companions of Paul. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward, and Alexander, motioning his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, 
the courts are opened and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. You may be seated. This is God's word to us as a local church today. And we want to hear what the spirit of God would say to us as a church. And so what we have here in Acts 19 is a continuation of what we talked about last week. And it's a conflict between light and darkness. Okay. Later in the Apostle Paul's life, he's going to write back to the same church, the same group of people, these Ephesians. And he's going to write to them in Ephesians chapter 6. And he's going to remind them that your battle, even though you're looking at, at men and, and women who stand against you, the Apostle Paul tells them that your battle is not against flesh and blood. And he reminds this church that the real battle is against these spiritual Forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Acts 19 is a playing out of this spiritual battle. Okay? Battle between light and darkness. And it's just one additional chapter in a history long war, a spiritual war that's raged all throughout human history. And the Bible tells us that this spiritual war began in the Garden of Eden. When God himself declared war on Satan and on Satan's kingdom. And I'll remind you of some words that God said in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Before the man and the woman were even cast out of the garden of Eden. God declared war on Satan and war on Satan's kingdom. And he said this. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And then God says, and between your offspring and her offspring. And with those words, the creator God, he divides all of humanity into two separate groups. And those groups are tracked all throughout human history. Those who belong to God, those who are the children of God, and then those who belong to the devil, those who are children of the devil. And so from the Garden of Eden... This spiritual war begins to rage between the children of the devil and the children of God. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4, he, he begins to sketch this out. He wants us to understand this. That the battle that we see, the resistance that we see right now, it's spiritual in nature. And not only that, it's connected to the very ancient roots of humanity from the Garden of Eden. And so Galatians chapter 4 verse 29, Paul says this. He says, just as at that time, pointing to the very beginning, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. 
What we're seeing now is the same way that it's always been. Those who belong to Satan, those who are born according to the flesh, persecute those who are born according to the spirit, the children of God. And so this perpetual warfare can be tracked all through God's word and then all throughout church history. And one of the things that this shows us on the very face of this story is we're being reminded that Christianity, the real thing, the genuine version of Christianity sets a man or a woman at odds with the world. Counterfeit versions of Christianity don't do that. But the real version has done that from the very beginning. It provokes a hostile response from the children of the devil. It puts a man and it puts a woman at odds with Satan. It's a To bow the knee to Jesus is a declaration of allegiance to Christ. And it's a declaration of war upon Satan and upon his kingdom. And this is exactly what we see, see playing out. In this city of Ephesus. And we're going we're gonna to jump into the plain meaning of what we see in this story. And then we're going to jump to modern day application as we finish today. So we're going to remind ourselves that we're standing in the middle of chapter 19. And what we talked about last week was the Holy Spirit is exploding in this city with spiritual power. There's a move of the Holy Spirit happening in Ephesus, the gospel has been preached in this city every single day for two years at this point. And then the story picks up on the backside of this wide open door for gospel ministry in Ephesus. We find in verse 21 in verse 22, Paul is, is planning his next move. Okay, he's planning his next move. He's planning in the Holy Spirit. He's being counseled by God, the Holy Spirit, of how he's going to spend his life. I had a brother just a couple of weeks ago refer to this type thing in the Apostle Paul's life as gospel scheming. Called the Apostle Paul a gospel schemer that he's constantly thinking through and meditating and thinking through, how can I best spend my life to glorify Jesus Christ? I have a limited amount of days in this world. And I want to magnify the glory and worth of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is standing in the middle of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Ephesus. And he's already thinking his next move of where he's going next. He mentions three things. Verse 21 and 22, he tells us that he's going to travel back to Macedonia and Achaia. And what that's a reference to is those two churches that we just saw planted in the book of Acts. The church at Philippi and the church at Corinth. And so one of the things that Paul's planning to do next is what we've seen him do several times at this point in the book of Acts. Is he's going to go back to these newly established churches. And he wants them to be established, strengthened in Jesus Christ. So his first move is going to be to strengthen these new churches. And then he tells us that he's going to go to Jerusalem. If we read other places in the New Testament several different times, he tells us that he's, got, he's going to Jerusalem to deliver this very specific gift. 
that there's been this collection that's been gathered in all these Gentile churches. And Paul is delivering this massive monetary gift to a very needy church in Jerusalem. And so he's going to strengthen these churches. He's going to come back and he's going to deliver this, this, this gift, this generous gift to the church in Jerusalem. Both of those are gospel works. He wants to see Jesus glorified in both of those works. And then most of all, he lands on this phrase and he says this, I must also see Rome. I must do that. And we get a glimpse, just in these, this, this little phrase, we get a glimpse of how he thinks. Okay, A pulse on his life is that he is being driven by the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so think about that. The Spirit of God is being poured out in this pagan city of Ephesus. People are hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. And Paul says that's not enough. Gospel's got to go to Rome. And he sets his sight on the most important city in the world at this point. The very heart of the Roman Empire. And he says, I'm about to preach that Jesus is king. In the middle of the imperial city, gospel has to go to Rome. I must see Rome. So we get a glimpse in this man's life. He's constantly thinking through when he's planning about what I'm going to do in this month or next year, the next five years. And we need to be challenged in that regard. We think about how we're going to spend these few days, this vapor of a life that we have. We think about how we're going to spend it. How much of this type thing is governing, governing how you plan your life? I want Jesus to be magnified. I want the gospel of Jesus Christ to be extended. And this is exactly what we see Paul doing. In verse 21 and 22, he's making plans to advance the gospel. And he stays in this additional period of time in Ephesus. Earlier in the chapter, we're told he's there for two years. In the next chapter of Acts, we're going to find out that he's there for a total of three years preaching the gospel in Ephesus. And during this additional period of time, we're told in verse 23 that this disturbance arises against the gospel in the city of Ephesus. And when the New Testament, this is an idiom that's used frequently in the book of Acts, not a little disturbance. Okay, is the is the word that she, that's just one way of saying a really big disturbance arose in Ephesus towards the gospel. Now, think about why. Think about why in the world would a disturbance arise to the good news of Jesus Christ, a free offer of salvation apart from works. What could possibly be the problem that anyone would have? With that message. With the Christian gospel. And part of the way this text starts. It gives us a hint. In, in one of the reasons why the world hates Christianity. Because what, what we're reminded of at the very beginning. Through Paul's scheming and through his plans. Is we're reminded of one of the, one of the reasons that the world hates Christianity. Is because it spreads. And because it increases, it's not this little bitty thing that stays this little bitty thing. And you need to know that. Okay? The world that we live in has very little problem 
with a Christ that you keep to yourself. But we're in a whole nother world when we're talking about this man that has plans to invade the imperial city with the message that Jesus is Lord. So that's part of the reason why this disturbance would rise up. That the gospel is seeking to advance. Okay? And then we get another hint in verse 23 about this name that Christians are given. And they're called the way. The disturbance arose towards the way. And the thing that I want you to notice there is that when Christians and Christianity is described, it's not described as a way. It's described as the way. Okay. And we're talking about this exclusive claim that Christians have always made that we have exclusive knowledge of salvation from sin. They are known as the way. The way. And so what we're seeing in our culture when the exclusivity of Jesus Christ is claimed, this is not one of many ways to find your way to God, one of many ways to relate to God. It is the only way to relate to God. We find hostility towards this message, this gospel message of exclusivity in a pluralistic world. And this is exactly how the gospel was preached in the early church. It was an exclusive message. But listen, they preached it in a pluralistic Roman Empire with hundreds of thousands of different gods. And these Christians were known as those who proclaimed all of those ways are false and this one way is true. They are the way. And I'll remind us also that Christians didn't invent this exclusivity. Okay? And that's one of the ways that Christians are charged today with, man, you are a bigot. You think there's one way and no other way? That's a bigoted worldview that you have. And the thing I want to remind us of, Christians didn't make this up. Jesus did Jesus made this up. Jesus is the one. Meek and mild. Yes, he is. But this meek and mild one, he really did say this. John 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was exclusive. Jesus was uh, intolerant of any other ways of salvation. He was absolutely intolerant. He claimed to have the exclusive way of relating to God. And Christians have preached this message from the very beginning. So in Acts 19, this exclusive gospel was proclaimed in the city of Ephesus, a city given over to false religion. And one of the things we know about Ephesus from this story and from history is that it was the epicenter of the worship of this goddess known as Artemis. It was the very center, uh, this city was the very center of where she was worshipped. It contained her temple. The temple, the temple of Artemis. Now, this structure was so huge, so impressive, that it's known 
as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Okay, so we're talking about big time, huge, massive structure in the middle of the city. History tells us that it's nine times bigger than the Parthenon, where all the Greek gods were worshipped in Rome. So you have this massive structure in the middle of the city, this temple to Artemis. And the whole city is revolving around the worship of this false goddess. And people from all over the Roman Empire are coming in to see this temple. Man, I've heard about this temple. I want to see this temple. And they're coming in not only to see the temple. There's a stone inside the temple that supposedly has fallen from heaven and is the very image of Artemis herself, most likely this is a meteorite that was found shoved in the middle of this temple and was and was a massive tourist attraction in the Roman Empire, this temple of Artemis. She was worshipped as the goddess of fertility. And that means both that was applied both to fertile crops and fertile wombs. Okay? And for those reasons, she became associated with womanhood and financial prosperity. She was worshipped in order to secure these things from this false goddess. And so the story in Acts 19 is that exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ began to be proclaimed in this city given over to false worship. And the account tells us that at that point, sparks began to fly. Okay? This disturbance arose towards this exclusive gospel. And in verse 24, we see an accuser step forth and he makes a charge against the Apostle Paul. Verse 24, is, his name is Demetrius. And the text tells us that he's a silversmith of Artemis. And what that means is that his job is he makes these little silver figurines, these silver replicas of the temple, of the temple, or of that stone, or of you know the supposed way that Artemis looks. And so he had these little silver figurines that, as these tourists came into Ephesus to visit the temple, they would buy these replicas from him, take them back to their homes. And they would set up home altars to the worship of this false goddess named Artemis. If you look at verse 26, he begins to lay out his charge. And, and it gives us an amazing glimpse into how far, how much progress the gospel is making in Ephesus. So notice what he says in verse 26. He's mad as he can be at the Apostle Paul. And he says, in all of Asia, okay, that's an entire province in the Roman Empire. He looks at this man, this is one man, okay? Think about how amazing this would be to be stamped on your resume for Jesus Christ. In all of Asia, this one man, Paul, has persuaded and turned away a great many people from worshiping Artemis. And then he tells us how he says, because this man is going around saying God's made with hands are not God's. And so Paul, as he's preaching the gospel, 
he is directly attacking the false gods in this city. And he's looking at them. And, and, and nothing is more basic and plain sense as this. If you make something with your hand, it's not a god. And he's indicting all these worshipers of Artemis that they're engaged in false worship. In verse 27, Demetrius lays out what he fears to be the outcome. And he tells us that he doesn't want Artemis to be deposed from her magnificence. Think about that. Think about how awesome it is to see the gospel of Jesus take direct aim at a false god and there to be fear that that false god is about to be dethroned. Dethroned. And I want you to think about all across this room. Raise one finger for every worshiper of Artemis you've ever met in your entire life. And the answer is very, very likely all across this room. We've never met one because the gospel of Jesus Christ buried it in the ground. She was deposed from her magnificence. What about all the worship of these Greek gods and goddesses? Roman gods and goddesses. Christianity, in just a couple of hundred years, stamped the remembrance of these false gods. It stamped the remembrance of their name out. And their worshipers are almost um, unaccounted for in all the planet Earth. And so the fear, she's going to be deposed from her magnificence. And then he, he puts his finger on two downline effects. And if that happens... He says her temple, verse 27, is going to be counted as nothing. This magnificent, glorious structure, if her reputation is deposed, then her temple is just going to be a pile of rocks. It's going to be counted as nothing. And then wait for it. Not only that, does he fear. He says our trade, our trade is going to come into Disrepute. And it's hard to read this story without, you know, us assuming this is really his motive at the end of the day. Is what, what we're being made aware of is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is making such an advance in this city that so many people are being converted to Christ that the demand for silver shrines is decreasing. And this man and all his buddies are feeling the effects of it in his pocketbook. And you don't mess with this man's money. That's what he's really hearing. That as this false worship is dethroned, I don't get what I really want. And that's money. So I want us to notice here in Acts 19 of how intertwined false worship and money actually are. This man had two problems. Yes, he did have a problem with bowing to a literal physical image and a false god. But this man had another problem that his god was also money. And he bowed to the god of money. So beginning in verse 28, this city is whipped into hysteria. And two different times in this paragraph, when Luke describes what's happening in this city... The word he uses to describe it is the word confusion. And that means that what's going on here is irrational. It's not being driven by ration and logic. It's being driven by chaos. 
confusion. There's a famous commentator named Matthew Henry. I want you to listen to what he says about this confusion in Ephesus. He says, confusion is the common effect of zeal for a false religion. Because false religions dethrone reason and they enthrone passion in its place. And so the most logical, rational, reasonable thing for any human being to do is to worship the Creator. It's the most rational response of a created being. False worship, by definition, is always irrational. It's a dethroning of reason and an enthroning of passion. We're told in verse 29 that co-workers of the Apostle Paul are drink, that they're drugged into this theater. And it's an interesting thing that part of this theater is still standing today. And you can Google this. Um, you know, sometime later this afternoon, you can Google Ephesian Amphitheater. And it's still standing. They still have concerts there. Now, you can go and look at pictures of it. And I encourage you to do that because you can get a really vivid picture of exactly what's happening in Acts 19. This is a real place. It's a real place. There's, the Christians are being drugged in to this mob-type riot. And Paul wants to enter. We see that in verse 30. But the disciples stop him. He's got friends and they lay hands on him. They say, you ain't going in there. And he's saying, I want to go in there. And they say, you're not going in. Okay. And this is the type of thing that we see playing out between King David and his men. I'll read you this verse from 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3. But the men said to David, you shall not go out with us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. And that's exactly what's happening here. The Apostle Paul, he's so central in, in the mission to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Roman Empire that the disciples say, hey, listen, you ain't going in there. Okay. You're worth 10,000 of us. And the odds are 1,000 to 1. You go in. You're going to die. We need you to advance the gospel. And so they stopped him. They restrained him from entering in to this theater. And we're told at the end of this paragraph that these crowds are in such chaos that for two hours they repeat over and over again, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. Six words. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now sometimes you hear some fun being made and poked at modern contemporary Christian worship songs. Sometimes they're called 7-Eleven songs. Sing the same seven words 11 times over. Okay, and Some of the ways that's how we poke fun at that. But think of, we're in a whole other world here. We have the same six words for two hours straight. The only response that they have to this gospel that Paul's been proclaiming in Ephesus is great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then in verse 35, we have this town clerk and he steps forward. And amazingly, this man begins to make a defense. He defends the Apostle Paul and his co-workers. And in verse 37, he tells us 
that these men aren't sacrilegious. Okay? And that literally means they're, they're not temple robbers. And nor are they blasphemers. Okay? And this tells us something really important about the advance of the gospel in this city. That they didn't just take up any means to destroy this false god. This false goddess was destroyed in a very specific way. And so what did they do? They proclaimed that Jesus was Lord. They proclaimed this exclusive gospel. But they didn't rob the temple. Okay? They didn't run into the temple of Artemis. Grab all these false images, take them to the middle of the city, beat them to pieces with a hammer, and torch them to the heavens. They did not do that. Why? Why? It's false worship. Why didn't they do that? Why weren't they sacrilegious? Why weren't they temple robbers? Because these men, the church of Jesus Christ, was convinced that if they aim at the, at the idol in the human heart... If they preach that gospel and aim at human hearts bowing to the Lord Jesus Christ, then they knew if that happened, it was only a matter of time before the idols in the temples were emptied out. Their strategy was proclamation. They didn't rob the temple and beat these replicas of Artemis to smithereens. And then notice this, neither did they blaspheme this false goddess. Neither were they known in Ephesus. There's no proof to, 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 to charge them with their, their blaspheming Artemis. Now that's an interesting thing because she's a false god. But it also tells us, gives us some insight into their strategy of preaching the gospel in Ephesus. They're not walking up and down the streets cursing Artemis with foul language. Okay? They're not blaspheming Artemis, pronouncing curses on Artemis. And why would they not do that? Why are they making this rational appeal that Jesus is better, Jesus is Lord? And one of the reasons to that question, one of the answers to that question is in James chapter 1, we are told that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Do you know that? Nobody's getting saved because of how angry we are about false religion and false worship. That's not the, the power of God unto salvation. That's not how it works. So these Christians, what they did over and over is they delivered the spiritual dynamite that Jesus is Lord. And they called all men everywhere to repent, to repent. We're told that this assembly was disbanded only after they were threatened that unless we break this up, the arm of Caesar could be stretched out uh, on, on the city of Ephesus. And it's the only thing that got their attention when he mentioned this, the, the riot disbanded. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to take this story, this ancient story about the advance of the gospel in Ephesus. And I want us to, to walk, walk through several takeaways um, that we're confronted with as we bring this ancient story into our modern world. What does Ephesus have to do with you? What does this story have to do with Tuesday and, and your life this coming up week? And I want us to be convinced more and more week by week that all Scripture not only is it breathed out by God, 
but it's profitable. It makes a difference in our life. And so I want us to start here. That more than anything else, this story reminds us of the reality of false worship. Okay? False worship. The Bible tells us that human beings are made in the image of God. We're image bearers of God. And one of the many things that that means is human beings are worshipers. Okay? Now, by innately in who we are, the essence of who we are is that we are worshipers. That's the, that's, that's the revelation of God from Holy Scripture. And so notice that we're not saying that we have the opportunity to choose to be worshipers. The Bible actually presents that every human being is a worshiper. Okay? In the same way that you don't choose to be a breather or a non-breather, you don't make a choice to be a worshiper or a non-worshiper. We are worshipers. Every single one of us. Made in the image of God. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that all of us are engaged in worship. Okay, And he sketches out all different ways this plays out. And at the end of the day, he tells us that any created thing that has our ultimate allegiance, any created thing that we put in the place of the Creator... The Bible calls this idolatry. And the Apostle Paul tells us that we are universally guilty of this sin. Idolatry. So I wonder this morning, have you ever considered that you have participated without exception in this room in false worship in idolatry? That's what the Word of God tells us. We are idolaters. Now... Unfortunately, one of the things that happens in our Western context and all of our scientific advancements is we tend to feel way too safe when the Word of God begins to speak about idolatry and false gods and false worship. We tend to feel way more insulated and way safer than we ever should about these realities. And, and the reason for that ought to be evident to you. Okay? That by and large, most of the people in this room, you have never bowed to a physical idol and honored it as a literal God. And the very next step in that equation is a wrong conclusion that we say, therefore, I have never practiced idolatry. And one of the things that we're going to learn is that it doesn't work like that. Okay? Idolatry runs deeper than bowing before physical, literal images. And so Scripture speaks to this. Paul teaches this. In Colossians chapter 3, he, sa he says verbatim these words. He says, covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay? So I want you to think about how closely... That hits home to us. That the Bible says that the things that we lust for, the things that we covet, the things in our life that, that have the ultimate value, that sit in the ultimate place, 
that serve as our ultimate authority, that, that ultimately we, we find satisfaction in, the Bible calls this worship. Okay? And every human being is engaged in worship. And more than that, every human being has engaged in false worship. Deifying things other than the Creator. Created things in place of the Creator. And I want us to understand that this is universal. Okay? The atheist's claim to fame is that he worships nothing. But the reality is, the atheist is a worshiper. He has something that he ultimately values. He has something that he ultimately relates to as his authority. He has a God and he's engaged with worshiping human, his autonomous human reason. He is a worshiper. He has a religion. Even an atheist is a worshiper. And the same thing is true, you know, driving this in to the, the spheres of life that we live in. The social media addict who lives off of what other people think about them. It's the most important thing for them is the praise of man. That person is engaged in worship. That is their God. That is their God. And the same truth is the corporate ladder climber. Okay. That sacrifices to this false God. Puts everything on the altar. Family. Wife. Husband, I'll sacrifice it all to get what I really want. And that's money and success and making a name for myself. All these okay, are acts of worship. They're acts of idolatry. Whatever you covet, whatever you desire, whatever you find yourself thinking about, daydreaming about all the time. This is, this is what idols do. They consume us. They, they are first in the mind, first in the heart. And so I want you to think about this this morning. I want you to think about what it is in your life that, if, that you think, if I can have this thing, or if I can have this person, or if I can have whatever it is, this achievement, then if I can only have this one thing, then my life would have meaning. Then my life would have value. Then it would count for something. And then think about the other side of that same question. If I were to lose this one thing, or if I were to lose this one person, or if something happened where I couldn't get this one thing that I desired, I don't even know how I would go on living. I have to have it. Okay? Every human being lives like this. We're worshipers. And when we, when we dethrone God in our lives, something automatically is put in His place. It's impossible for this not to happen. We're all engaged in worship. And one of the things that this story ought to make us do is examine our lives for the presence of false gods, false allegiances, and false worship. And this is one of the things that we turn from in conversion and we continue repenting of this sin as it creeps up in the Christian life. We remind ourselves as Christians of what we signed up for to follow Jesus as Lord. No rivals to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this text reminds us the reality of false worship. No one is neutral. You will never meet a human being who is a neutral 
blank slate. That is a false idea to the very core of it. Every human being is a worshiper and is actively engaged in worship. And if you're having trouble identifying what the idols are in your life this morning, then I want to help you that all roads lead back to this one. All roads in idolatry lead back to yourself. That what we do when we turn away from the Creator God, when we reject His rule, when we live in rebellion, automatically what we do is we put ourselves in His place. That's exactly what they did in the Garden of Eden. Self-deification is a sin that we have all practiced. And the Word of God calls us to turn from this sin. The idolatry of self. The idols of false gods. They're all around us. Everywhere that God is not worshipped, a false god is worshipped. And this text reminds us of that. And then the very next step is the text also reminds us that this gospel that we proclaim and this gospel that we receive, it launches an attack on false worship. Part of the proclamation from the very beginning was this. God's made with hands. They are not God. Jesus is Lord and no one else is. That's the message of the gospel. It confronts us in our idolatry. It is a message that Jesus loves you. It is that. It is a message that Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Yes, it is. Yes, he does. But it's, a, but it's also a message that Jesus is king and you must swear allegiance to him. You must turn away from your false gods and come in, in, in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the saving response. This is what the gospel assaults in every human culture is the worship of false gods. And so we see this often in the book of Acts that, that one of the things that Paul does, does this in Acts 17, is when he preaches that gospel, part of his proclamation is announcing that there is one true and living God. One. Not hundreds, not thousands, not three, not two. There's one God. And the Christian gospel reminds us that every other claim to be a God or to be a goddess, they are nothing more than deaf, dumb, and dead idols. They're false gods and they cannot save us. Idolatry. The gospel attacks it. This is not the only place where we see Paul confronting idolatry. He'll turn back just a few chapters in Acts 17. He goes into this city in Acts 17. And he tells us um, that the city of Athens in Acts 17 verse 16 is full of idols. So th think about that. That's what the word of God would have you to think about when you think about Athens. Filled, slammed, full. Of idols. And in the midst of the city, I want you to notice what Paul says in Acts 17, verse 29. He says this We ought not 
to think that the divine being is like an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And so he's announcing this not only in Ephesus, this was his announcement also in Athens. And his point is really simple. Okay? Don't think about the divine one as something that you make with your hands. Does that make sense? Things that you make with your hands are more like Plato figurines than they are like the one true God. It doesn't work like that. Things that you make with your hands don't live. They're not the living God. That was his message. So he tells us that God is not something that you carve with your hand. It doesn't work like that. You can't take the tool to the piece of wood or to the clay and carve the one true God. You can't do that. But notice what he says in verse 19. Not only does he tell us that God is not like an image that you form with the art as the hand of man. God's made with, God's made with hands are not God's. He also says, don't you think that the divine being is like something, an image that you form with the imagination of man. A false God is not only something you create with your hand. A false God is something you create with your mind, with your thoughts, and with your imagination. And this is really important because hundreds of thousands of people in the area that we live in have taken the God of the Bible and they have carved him into an image of their own making, a figment of their own imagination, a carving of their own mind. And you automatically know you're being confronted with this false God of your culture when they say things like, my God would never do that, would never do that. It's this idea that you want to have this God that's spoken about in Scripture that loves sinners. That's this merciful God. But you want to empty the Bible of everything it says about His holy and righteous and explosive and eternal wrath. And His judgment for sinners. And His excluding every other way to relate to God. And the claim of the culture is, my God would never do that. That's a false God carved with the imagination of men and women. And what we're reminded of in this story that everything besides the true God, everything that we would carve with our hands or carve with our minds, it's dead. That's what it is. It's deaf, dumb, and dead. It has no power to save us. All it can do is your entire life deceiving you into thinking that it satisfies you, but you will wake up in hell forever. That's where a false worship leads, without exception. Deaf, dumb, and dead, they cannot save. And so what the gospel does... The gospel call is a call to turn away from these false gods that we serve in place of Christ. That's what the word repentance means in the New Testament. Think, of, think about this. If you've, never, if you've never thought about that, that word repentance is necessary for salvation. It's necessary for you to be saved. 
forever. You must repent. And what that means is that you turn away from self and sin and all these false gods. And you turn to Christ in faith to worship Jesus as Lord. And so I want you to think about that this morning. You're here and we're glad you're here. And I want you to think about these, these realities of idolatry and the claim of the gospel that you must come out, you must repent, you must turn away. And I want to ask you this morning, if, if this is your testimony, I want to ask you if you can think back in a period in, in your life where you made a real transition from being an idol worshiper to a worshiper of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to become a Christian. That you're engaged in false worship and you turn away from whatever you put in place of Jesus and you come in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. Another way to ask this this morning is do you have the testimony of the Thessalonians in the New Testament? So what do you mean by that? Turn really quickly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I want you to notice how the Bible describes these men and women becoming Christians in verse 9. Do you have this testimony? We're told that they turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. Have you done that? Is that a real transition that has happened in your life? Where you have turned to God from idols. And now the disposition of your life is to serve the living and the true God. And to wait for His Son from heaven. This is the call of the gospel. Jesus would have every one of us to know that He came and He died for our sins. And He rose from the dead. And He offers a free salvation. To any and all who put their trust in Him. He would have every one of us to know that. And He would have us to know that part of this call to salvation includes that you express total allegiance to Jesus Christ. Total allegiance. Part of what happens when someone gets saved is they swear allegiance to a new king. And Jesus demands that you do that. And we see this call. In Jesus' own words, given several different times throughout the Gospels, He looks at the crowd and He says, Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Me. That's not a call just to be a really good Christian. That's a call to enter into the kingdom of God. Deny yourself. Take up that cross and follow Jesus Christ. The Gospel assaults. Our idols. Last thing I want us to see in this text. Is we have an example in Ephesus. That the gospel transforms culture. Okay. And I want you to notice that this happens. To the degree. That the gospel. Converts individuals. You say what are you talking about? In the city of Ephesus. We have an example. Of the gospel shaping culture. Transforming culture. It has significant social effects. On the financial district. 
of the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It's affecting the economy. It's affecting the moral climate of a major city in the ancient world. Now, how is this helpful for us? There's a, there's a really steady conversation going on in the church. There's a lot of talk about the gospel's effect on the culture. And there's a lot of competing ideas as to how this effect is to be brought about. And the most prominent way we're seeing this play out is with conversations around social justice. And Acts 19 gives us a really helpful grid. And I would encourage you to use this grid to think about any and all forms of societal transformation. And the grid that we see in Acts 19 is that the gospel transforms Ephesus as more and more people are converted to Jesus Christ. As more and more people repent of idol worship and false worship and bow the knee to Jesus. And so the pattern that is held forward for us in the Word of God is not just transformation of culture and not just conversion of individuals, but of transformation through conversion. That's the biblical pattern. Transformation through conversion. Unrighteous societies, unjust cultures, the reason why they're unrighteous and the reason why they're unjust is because they're made up of unregenerate men and women. That's why. That's always the case. Okay? That's the problem with human societies and human cultures is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And, and we see in this text the beautiful remedy of Jesus Christ. What is Jesus' answer to a culture that's dead in the trespasses and sins? And the answer is new birth. Regeneration. You got, you got hundreds and then thousands and then possibly hundreds of thousands of people that are bowing the knee to Jesus in Ephesus. You see that? And as that happens more and more and more, you see the effects of the gospel begin to shape human societies through transformation of individual people. Individuals. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. They are absolutely new. They're not dead in their trespasses and sins. Any longer. And this is how societies are shaped and, and transformed. And church history bears witness to this. Okay? It's not just one or the other, it's transformation through conversion. And what we see in the book of Acts is that as more and more are converted, as the numbers of converts increases and grows, cultures are shaped. Even economies of cities are touched by the Lordship. Of Jesus Christ. We see this in church history. That when the Spirit of God has moved in power and revivals, first and second great awakenings are perfect examples of this. That the moral climates of nations, neighborhoods, cultures, societies are shaped as people are converted. And so this is the Christian practice. This is how, this is how we love our neighbor as ourselves. This is how we pursue righteousness and justice in our nation is we want to see people all over the world made new. 
born again all over the earth. Transformation through conversion. And one of the things I want us to be wise about as a local church and to be warned about as a local church is any worldviews that attempt to engineer transformation of society that are not aiming at sinful humanity being made new in Jesus Christ. They are not Christian worldviews. I'll say that again. Any worldviews that are aiming to engineer transformation in human societies. And those worldviews are not aiming to make people born again in Jesus Christ through the announcement of the gospel. Those are not Christian worldviews. This is why the mission of the church of Jesus Christ has always been a call to all nations to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation from sin. This has always been the mission of the church. And this will always be the mission of the church. And this is the only hope for all the nations. Is that they're made new in Jesus Christ. I'll share one more thing here. This is also why we, uh, I'll read you a piece of our uh, doctrinal statement as a local church. And this is our common confession. Okay, As members of Grace Community Church, we say this is what we believe. This is what we believe is true. And I'll read you an article about what we what we confess to be the way we think about our impact on society. We say this. We believe that Christians are the light of the world. Means and methods used for the improvement of society. And the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful, but only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what we confess. Transformation through conversion. And I want you to think about what Satan so angry about in Ephesus. Why the riot? Why the disturbance? And the answer is his kingdom is being plundered of human souls. They're being ripped out of his dominion and being transferred into the dominion and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this is what we want to see as a local church. And this is what we want to play a part of as a local church. Not putting mere band-aids on human problems, but bringing the new birth from heaven, regeneration made new, righteousness poured out from heaven. This is what we want to see Jesus do through us. And the weapon that he's given us to do this is the gospel. Jesus is Lord. So I'm going to spend some time as we close praying for us that as we announce this, that the Holy Spirit would use us, that he would use us as we proclaim Christ is Lord in the midst of false worship. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning. God, and I want to confess to you, Lord, that unless you help, God, that message that we just heard, Lord, it'll fall to the ground. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would be stirred up in zeal for your own name and that you wouldn't let your word fall to the ground in vain this morning, but that you would use it to accomplish your purpose. 
And Lord, I pray for this church, for my brothers and sisters. God, I pray that you would use us as weapons of spiritual warfare, Lord. And this battle that we see raging, Lord, that you would use us as light that penetrates the darkness, Lord. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, and for us as a local church, that you would use us as a people, Lord, to plunder the kingdom of Satan, even to dethrone false gods in our city and in our culture. Lord, we ask you to do this for the glory of your own name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.